You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasa, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. How are you? I'm keeping well. And yourself, Kathy? I'm, I'm very well. Thank you. We didn't get much of a chance to chat when I got in. I was a little bit late today, but uh, all good for I the was past also, week. I was always running around as well. Yeah. So everything's been going well this past week. In fact, I'm actually going to be making a trip to our Montreal station uh, in a couple of days. Nice. I'm going to be visiting the studio and repairing some equipment there. So it's been a busy time, but it's been um, rewarding all the same. Do they have as many shows going on as we do here in Toronto? They're about the same? About the same in terms of uh, primarily the Italian station. Oh. So... Um, they're broadcasting uh, the majority of programming from Italy, but they do have about the same amount of local programming oh, as do. we do in Toronto mm-hmm. in terms of the Italian uh, programming. With yes. their own producer over there, obviously. Yes. Oh, excellent. Yeah, there's okay. a series of technicians over mm-hmm. there as well. Well, very good. Well, when are you leaving? Uh, Thursday. Thursday. Thursday morning, yes. Well, have a good trip. Thank you. Good evening on Halloween. Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> Today's show is live. Our number is 416-245-1534. Please do follow us. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three social sites. And if you would like to email us with show uh, suggestions, any questions that maybe weren't answered, or if you need contact information for any of our guests, please do email us at thh at radiomaria.ca. Also, please do subscribe to our podcast Podcasts. As you know, all of our shows are turned over into podcast forms to be forever uh, on the internet for you to listen to. Uh, we are at the Health Hub. We are on iTunes, SoundCloud, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcasts on the Radio Maria Canada website. They are www.radiomaria.ca. And you can find them on my website, which is kathybiasse.com. So just uh, this week, a couple of items to check off. Number one, again, is Halloween's coming up this Thursday. Uh, traffic is always a disaster, so do be patient uh, or leave early, one or the other. But it's always terrible, everyone trying to get home to, to get their kitties out. And do watch for the little ones darting across the road. Their uh, sole, sole objective for the evening is to fill their bags with candy. Fill their pillowcases, yes. <laughs> exactly. And uh, road safety may not be their top priority, so do do have patience and take care. They are our, our prized, precious possessions. Secondly, we do turn our clocks back this weekend, so we get an extra hour of sleep. Well, that's something to look forward to. It always is. It always is, uh, the, except for the, the darker mornings and well, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, a little bit of sacrifice there, but that's okay. A little bit of sacrifice. It, it, the time just flies by so quickly, you know. know. What is it? December, right around December what, yeah. 25th, 26th, that's the, the shortest day of the year. And then is they it? just all start, I think. I think, And then I think they all just start 
gradually building up again. So very good. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, shorter, shorter uh, daylight hours, but uh, that's all right. And finally, um, this week marks the end of Breast Cancer Awareness Month. And before we move into November, I wanted to discuss something very important regarding breast health, and that is uh, self-examination. Breastcancer.org states that about 20% of the time, breast cancers are found by physical examination. So since you, in fact, are with your boobs most of the time, it is a very wise and it's a very logical idea to understand how to perform a proper breast self-examination. Um, in fact, I did post this on my Instagram page. There's a nice diagram there. Uh, I'll walk you through it a little bit, but it's to get the visual is, is much better. Um, but I will walk you through it. Do uh, schedule or make plans to do your self-examination once a month. And then you will know what normal is, and if something is not normal, you will recognize it quite readily. Usually, um, people are recommending, uh, breastcancer.org, uh, recommend two to three days after your periods. During your periods, your breast can change just due to hormones. So two to three days after periods, um, stand in front of the mirror or in the shower and raise your arm and um you know, explore around your armpit and examine the breast using your fingertips. Go in an up and down motion in a circular motion. Make sure you're feeling all areas underneath and over top. Take a look at the um, the skin on your breast. Uh, that can change. If that changes, take note of it. If you notice any changes, you're going to be calling your doctor right away. Chances are it's nothing, but, you know, you do need to take care also notice uh, with your skin, not just changes, but the texture and the color, if something happens there. And uh, take a look at the nipple area. If um, it changes at all, it, uh, it is something worthwhile to mention to your doctor. Um, and again, do that in front of the shower or sorry, in front of the mirror in the shower. Uh, I found the lump in my breast by doing a self-exam. So, you know, you are your first line of defense. You know your body the best. So take care. And, um, you know, these self-examinations, they are, they are free. Uh, they're done by you. They're non-invasive and they could save your life. So as we uh, leave October, um, this, this applies to all young ladies, moms, talk to your daughters, show them how to do a, a proper self-exam. If it's an uncomfortable conversation, get the diagram. Um, as I said, you can go on the internet. I've got one on my, um, on my Instagram page that you can take a look at, but talk to them. Make your daughters aware, um, that it is their body and they need to, they need to take care. It does start with, uh, self-care and self-prevention. Uh, as I said, today's show is live. We've got a very interesting topic. Um, Jenny Deer is author of What Does It Feel Like to Die? She is a writer in Durango, Colorado. She combines her past experiences as a journalist and an English professor to delve into subjects that seem most important. Her recent book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? was inspired in part by years of volunteering with hospice. The book is based on interviews with researchers, caregivers, and patients, as well as on her own observations. Uh, Jenny also co-wrote The Responsible Journalist, An Introduction to News Reporting and Writing. And this is a book that focuses on critical and ethical thinking uh, as it teaches basic news and reporting skills. 
But back to the book that we will be discussing, I just wanted to read a couple of reviews that I pulled off of some websites. Um, what does it feel like to die is affecting. What sets this apart from the many other well-sourced books on the end of life is Deer's generosity and forthrightness. Readers curious about or ready to accept death will find solace and inspiration in this excellent investigation. And another one, the result is a brilliantly researched, eye-opening account that combines the latest medical findings with sensitive human insights to offer real emotional support and answers to some of the questions that will affect all of us at some point. Our learning points will be, um, again, amongst many that we'll be talking about, what is the existential slap that uh, Jenny discusses in her book? Is denial of death unhealthy? And what are some of the coping mechanisms for dealing with death that many of us employ? So when we get back from our break, we will be talking with Jenny Deer. Word of life, speak to my weary heart, strengthen my broken parts, lead me to your open arms. Word of truth, illuminate all these lies, the enemy speaks inside, and freedom I will rise, cause you call me out.
You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Today's show is live. You can reach us at 416-245-1534. And please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC. Jenny, welcome to the show. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's a very interesting topic. I had many comments on social media when we put uh, the show details out. It's a little bit of a departure from um, our normal vein, but I think it's a topic that really bears discussion, and to take on this uh, weighty subject is, is quite something. What inspired you to write this book? Well, it was, I had two parallel experiences, and one of them was watching my mother as she went through a um, breast cancer diagnosis and then various treatments for years and then learning that her cancer had spread and so her diagnosis became terminal and and watching her in her last few weeks. And then a year or two after she died, I became a hospice volunteer and watching my patients over the years and, and wondering about their experiences made me deeply curious about what it was like for them. And I, I was thinking about this recently because I was with a woman. We have a program that's called No One Dies Alone. I don't know if you have that in Canada or something similar, but if someone ends up in the hospital without any relatives or friends, then a volunteer goes and, and sits with the person if, if they wanted, if, if nurses can figure out if, if that would be something helpful it, while they're dying. And I was sitting with this woman who was in her last hour and watching her face really closely to try to understand what she most needed from me. Should I read to her? Should I just be quiet? Should I hold her hand? And, and her brow was slightly furrowed and she was struggling slightly to breathe and I realized it as is the case for so many people who are dying that that she was in her own world and that maybe it was helpful having me there but but she was you know she was already partly gone oh. and um and <laughs> I guess just the the curiosity about the experiences of patients like that and also of, of what it what it was like for for my mom at each stage along the way and I've got a I've got a um, I've got a place at, right at the beginning of my book where I talk about that and I'd like I'd like to read from that if that's all right uh, that'd be lovely thank you all right so this is this is from the introduction here's what I remember a hospice nurse sketching out logistics for my dying mother in terms both gentle and blunt, then a pause and the nurse asking, do you want to know what will happen as your body starts shutting down? She was offering to trace death's outlines on my mother's body and to do that now while my mother was mobile, coherent, and very much alive. There was a slight thrill of shock, of foreboding, but what my mother and I felt most strongly was relief and something like fascination. We wanted to know. Because in the course of six and a half years of treatment, 
although my mother saw two general practitioners, six oncologists, a cardiologist, several radiation technicians, nurses at two chemo facilities, and surgeons at three different clinics, not once, to my knowledge, had anyone talked to her about what would happen as she died. This book originated in that moment with my mother and the hospice nurse, although it would be years before I left my job as an associate professor of English and journalism and started researching. In the meantime, I would become a hospice volunteer and I'd wonder about the patients I visited. What were they experiencing? When some patients' breaths began coming in strange noisy patterns in their last few hours, I wondered how much they were suffering or whether it was possible that they weren't suffering at all. I wondered why some people seemed in such deep denial about the fact that they were dying. As hospice patients, how could they not understand the implications? I was especially curious about where dying patients' minds were when they stopped responding to their families. I felt both concern and awe. Were they struggling deep inside with emotional or physical pain? Or had they already embarked on an important spiritual journey? Wow. I recently um, lost my father and my mom and two sisters were with me as we saw him transition out of this world. And uh, that brings back some very poignant uh, memories. Um, I'm, I'm sorry to hear about your father. So many things are, thank you, so many things come to my mind. And I want to ask so many questions to illuminate to people who have never been through watching the death process. But the first, the first one that comes to my mind is how far could you go with the patients to their death's end? You know, how far were you able to get their side of how they were transitioning out? That's such a good question because the, the title of my book is unanswerable for mm-hmm. us, isn't it? What does it feel like to die? Because, because we won't know it until we go through that process. And um, I've, I've talked to hospice patients in various stages until their last days, but the majority of us, not everybody, but the majority of us are unconscious when we die. And, and I think, for instance, of that woman that I sat with recently, who was, if, if not unconscious, certainly not able to communicate to me what her experience was like. And so I'd, I'd say, for most people, it was up until the last few days, and then what I've written is based on what researchers either know or make educated guesses about, or in some cases, just don't don't know. What, in your experience, um, so we're assuming, and you're assuming that um, patients are unconscious, but what, in your practical experience, is the last sense that uh, that leaves somebody? And where I'm going with this is that, you know, when we held my dad's hand or we talked to my dad, I, it could be just wishful thinking. It could, you know, but he, he, there were things that we did or touches that seemed to 
relax him. Now, again, that could have been in my mind, but in your professional experiences, is there a sense that we have of the five that lingers on till the very end? Well, the, the saying from everyone who works with dying people is that hearing is the last sense to go. And I um, I, I think that was, that was what, the kind of statement that really made me want to delve into the research and say, so how do we know that? And I talked to one neurologist who who's mostly retired, and and through his years and years of working with people, I think has come to to a, a deeper wisdom because one of the things that he kept coming back to was what I what I keep discovering over and over is that people are more aware than we realize that that at all different stages and all kinds of consciousness, whether people are dying or not, there's more awareness when we're able to test for it than we realize. But back to is, is hearing the last sense to go, he said that it's likely because, of course, your, your eyes are closed, right? And you're, mm-hmm. you're no longer eating and, and maybe, you're, maybe touch is, is also lingers. But it, but he also cautioned that your sense organs might still work, but your brain might have already lost the ability to process information. So maybe maybe your ears are working fine, but maybe your brain has already passed the point where it's able to process what's being said around you. Mm-hmm. And I think what what hospice workers and palliative care workers have come up with is the, the best thing to do is to treat someone who's dying and who is apparently unconscious as if they might still be able to hear and feel because, because again, we really don't know. When you were going through the process of writing this book, <clears throat> were you, who are you trying to aim for in the back of your mind? Like, is this a, a great resource for people that have loved ones that are soon coming to an end, or are you trying to educate everybody on the process to make it less fearful? I, I think I'm, I was definitely trying to educate everyone about the process to make it less frightening and and hopefully to help us start talking about it and thinking about it before we get to to our own deaths or someone close to us. And I I think right after my mother died, I was I was too engulfed by grief to want to read something like this. But I think she and I would have loved to have this book months before or years before we did. And I and I've I've had readers come up to me in all parts of that spectrum spectrum, and say it's been really helpful to us in thinking about a terminal diagnosis of a family member or for that family member. And I've also had people who just hadn't really thought about about dying that much who for whom the book has been helpful. We, we in North America and the Western world uh, seem to have a different approach 
to death or understanding or I'm not sure the right word is our way of death and thinking of death an unhealthy one compared to what you may have encountered in other cultures? I did, so I did not study the process of, of dying and dealing with death deeply in other countries. But, I, but as I talked to researchers about how we deal with death and dying in Western developed nations, there is a certain unhealthiness about our attitude because it's, it's so easy not to face the fact that we're mortal. And, it, and knowing that there's a limit to life can make your, your day-to-day life so much richer and more rewarding and can make those last weeks or months or even years easier. But what, but what I always try to remind people of is the fact that we aren't close to death and dying isn't all our fault. That it, it's partly because we're, we're so blessed in leading these long lives and having so successful, successfully dealt with, with childhood fatal diseases. And so we don't see death regularly and organically in our lives, most of us. That that's interesting. It brings me to a question. We're just gonna, I'm getting the way from Alex. It's time to go to our half. But just a quick question before we do go to the half: um, Have you watched children experience someone dying, and do you think that's healthy? I have not dealt with a lot of children watching dying people, but but I've seen, when I have seen them, I've seen such a range where they don't have any idea of what's going on or when they, when they do, they seem more comfortable mm-hmm. with it sometimes than, than their parents. Yeah, we, um, a lot of my nieces and nephews and my children, they're older, they're not small children, uh, we're in, uh, it's never easy, but, um, you know, in my limited experience with having, with watching a couple of people pass away, um, death is inevitable. And, and these kids seem to strengthen, uh, around it. And I think them being present with our loved ones was, uh, wasn't, it was an unforgettable moment for me. And I, I can't help and, and hope that it, it, it made the transition of the two loved ones, uh, three loved ones that I'm thinking of, uh, an easier, an easier passing. But we're going to come back. I want to delve more into the, um, the ins and outs of your book because it is such an important topic and, and a fascinating conversation. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
for something more, for something more than we could ever imagine. There's so much more, there's so much more. Welcome back, everybody. We're talking with author Jenny Deer about her new book, What Does It Feel Like to Die? Jenny, in your book, you talk about the existential slap. Can you explain that to us? I, I can try. <laughs> There's a, the phrase comes from nurse researcher Nessa Coyle, but there have been several researchers who've studied the phenomenon, and it's, it's about the realization that you are really going to die, that you're mortal. And and what they've found is that people who are diagnosed with a terminal disease often go through this, this disturbing experience soon after they're diagnosed. It might happen in the doctor's office. It might happen a day or two later. And... It, and one researcher I talked to, Virginia Lee at McGill University, said it's not that we don't know intellectually that we're going to die because we, we all realize that. We know we're mortal. Even little kids have a sense of that. They've watched pets die or birds or bugs. But we don't really believe that we're going to die, that it's going to be us until something profound like a terminal diagnosis happens. And it, and it can shatter your sense of who you are, your identity, who you, who you are in your relationships with other people, your meaning, your purpose. And, and I think one of the reassuring things that I learned was that it doesn't last. It's this acute experience that people go through, and at most it can, people go in and out of it for two or three months. 
but then they they do come out the other side and for a lot of people they come out the other side with a deeper appreciation of of what they have left of life and of their connections to other people and some sense of of spirituality well i've seen i've seen people not come out well um Mm -hmm. as well so obviously there are those that have uh, would you say quote better coping mechanisms when it comes to death uh are people taught coping where do we get these coping mechanisms if you we get this existential slap and we go through this process where do these coping mechanisms develop and can unhealthy ones be changed Yes, there's a um, there's this to me very exciting developing subspecialty of study where psychologists and psychiatrists are trying to figure out well, they call them interventions, but methods for people to cope better with the diagnosis of a serious disease or or a fatal disease and. And each one is at least slightly different, but there's common threads. And one of them is starting with grieving, with allowing yourself to say, this isn't easy. This is, I'm losing everyone and everything I care about. And, and it's all right to be sad. And then at least for some of the interventions, another theme is thinking about huge hardships that you faced in the past and how you dealt with those effectively, what worked. And that can give people a sense of, yeah, there, there, there are ways that I might cope with this. And, and also a memory of, of having done it successfully in the past. And then a third lovely part of it is reflecting about what's been most important to you in the past, what's been most meaningful. And Harvey Chochinov at the University of Manitoba has become quite famous for his dignity therapy. And he and his colleagues who worked with people with advanced diseases noticed that when they talked to patients and talked about what's the worst thing about knowing that you're about to die or, or that that's closer to you, they would say losing our dignity. And so they came up with this intervention that includes a person sitting down with, with a recorder and talking about what, what's important to them, what their life has been like. And then the, the person takes the recording and transcribes it and edits it. And I've, I've always liked the idea of being able to edit your own life story. But, but one of the reasons is that this is a legacy. It's the transcript that's left for family members usually. And it, and it's, it, it's what do you want to leave behind? And the therapist who sits with the patient helps to guide them in, in making sure it's not hurtful to the, the people that they're leaving it to. So, so that 
reflection, thinking about what has been meaningful, and thinking about what you want to tell the, the people that you're leaving behind can help people with a sense of meaning and dignity. Jenny, who should read this book? You know, I'm listening to you talk, and the way loved ones approach the death of, of someone that they love versus the person dying can be at very different odds, can't it? Because when you're losing someone, it's almost a selfishness in your feeling. Maybe we're not supporting the people who are passing away properly. I think that's that's such a good point. And I I think I started out this book thinking I was writing it, I guess, for dying people. It was really important to me not to focus on the caregiver's experience. But, but I think it's so important for caregivers to think about what the dying person is going through. Because you have, you know, of course, as a caregiver... You need to tend to your needs. You need support and understanding for what you're going through and your grief. But but the more you have a window onto the experience of the dying person, I think the better that you can help them. And I and I think one important lesson that I that I keep learning over and over again is that dying experiences are are so different. They're common themes and threads, but they can be so individual, and, and people go through different, different phases in them, and, and sometimes there's this, this healthy um, denial, this, this willingness to, or unwillingness to face that you're about to die, that you have a fatal disease, and it, and it protects you from being overwhelmed, and then sometimes you never get out of that. And I think family members sometimes just need to, to just be with someone rather than urge their own vision of, of what dying should be like on someone else. Do you find that um, the, the dying accept what they're going to be going through a little bit sooner or more easily than people who love them? It, it, that's one of the things that's so varied because I think of, um, of one wife that I interviewed, a widow, and she, when she found out that her husband had a fatal disease, was, was grief-stricken but also saw that there was a silver lining that she would get to delve with him into the, the depth of this closeness and, and that they would learn from it together. And her husband was so deeply in denial that I think a week before he died, the hospice nurse said, you're, you're really dying. You understand that, don't you? And he said, yes. And after the nurse left, his wife went in to his room and said, so you heard the hospice nurse. You, you know you're dying. And he said, that's just her opinion. And then I've and then I've also seen patients who understand that they're dying, and they and they'll protect their family members. They'll see that their family members don't seem ready to talk about the subject, and so they don't bring it up. But they know. 
Do you, in what you've witnessed, is one an easier transition than another? Is someone who's completely dying uh, their death, do they struggle um, more? Do they suffer more than someone who has accepted it? I, absolutely, yeah. And, I, and one of the ways that that can happen is that that someone keeps requesting aggressive medical procedures mm-hmm. right up until the end. And I, I talked to researchers who said, you know, a death in the ICU with tubes and invasive procedures is always going to be a painful death. And, and many other deaths are not. But, it, but if you can't recognize the fact that that you're dying, then then you're much more likely to ask for that kind of aggressive medical treatment. And then you also, you lose the chance for these really meaningful, wonderful goodbyes. And I don't know what your experience with your father was, but for us, when my mother was dying, we had this really beautiful, sacred time as a family in her last few weeks. And and had we been in denial that she was actually dying, we would have lost that. These are really profound things that I think we need to take a look at. And, and I just, this book is meant for everybody. Uh, to be prepared at, at any age for death in any form, I think, puts you so much farther ahead than to knee-jerk when when you're faced with it. It's just, it, I, I like I said, I've seen death. I work with um, within the cancer field, so it's, it's not something that's unfamiliar to me. However, I've seldom seen many talk about it openly, um, and I think that this is, not just a part of, of people transitioning, but it's also a part of health for those that are left behind. I think that you've taken the time to write something that is so truly meaningful to, to everybody. And it's, it's, it's so important to talk about this because as you say, it, we're not getting out of here alive. So we might as well understand. Now you've seen a uh, death. Are there patterns? There are common threads. Um, can you give us those commonalities that you've seen or, or patterns that have come over again and again as you've watched someone um, exit this world? Mm-hmm. Again, you know, it's easy to think of, of death as being this one thing that's one method that we go through or, or one experience, and, it, and it's so varied. And researchers have come up with three to four graphs that show the different ways that we die. And one of them is, um, first one is sudden death. That's a horizontal line of, of health through most of your life, followed by this vertical line where you plunge to the bottom, and that's if you fall off a cliff or die in your sleep or something. And then another one is a horizontal line followed by this sloping incline. And that's that's so common for people with certain kinds of cancer that they call it the the cancer trajectory because you lead a life of of relatively good health for most of your life and then it's only the last few months that you're really that you really take to bed and and can't do things 
for yourself. And then the third graph is one that's sort of waves where you, where you start at one point and you get worse and better and worse and better. And each time it's a little, a little less better until you finally sort of peter out at the end. And, and what's helpful is knowing that the, that that other way of dying that we're less familiar with is, it's become the most common way that most of us in the U.S. anyway, and probably in, in North America can expect to die. And what can be difficult for that, people who die in some variation of that last pattern is there's not an easy moment with a, a fatal diagnosis where you can say, oh yeah, I have a terminal condition. And so it's much harder for people to realize they're dying and, and to have those last conversations where they say goodbye, where they make practical plans, or where they, where they decide, you know, there's, there's certain procedures I'm not going to have. I, I, I'm going to ask to avoid um, aggressive medical procedures. Mm-hmm. But as I've talked with friends who have elderly parents and they've said, oh, oh, you you know, I think this is the pattern that represents my parents. And, and it's allowed them that realization to, ha- to start having those conversations, to start saying, you know, this is the beginning of the end. And, and again, the, the more we have the chance to do that, the more we have the chance to be prepared for something that, that's going to stay a mystery in many ways, but it, but it doesn't have to be mysterious in in some of the ways that we face it. We saw or we heard why you wrote the book. Why what the initiate what the initiating um, premises for the book were. Obviously, you've talked to many people, many scientists, uh, many experts in the field. When you finally put your pen down at the end of it. Um, what was the most profound thing that you walked away with? I, I think it, it might have been that sense of, of, of awe that I, that I kept that through finding out the, the factual answers and the research. That at the end... Even when I talked to the neuroscientist about what what do we know about varying states of consciousness, that that ultimately we can't know those last few moments, and and that sort of sense of wonder and awe that about about ourselves as human beings. Who should read your book, Jenny? <laughs> uh, well, ag- again, I think I think everybody has moments in our lives at at all different points when we're fascinated by death and dying or open to the experience. And I I remember when I was in high school and an undergrad, and and I found questions like that so intriguing. And I, and I think that's a great time to learn about death and dying. And then I think baby boomers, as we think about our parents approaching mortality, 
and and are reminded of our own it's a really important time and then i think people who've had a, a terminal diagnosis if if they're ready if they're open to thinking about what it feels like to die then they and their family members it can be really reassuring because then you know you're not alone mm-hmm. i, I want to thank you not only for being on the show but for for writing this book because it's it's a void um, that needs to be filled, and it's as reviews have said as well. Uh, it's it's profound in its um, gentleness, kindness, and yet culmination of the research that you've done. So, very very wonderful, and, and thank you again for taking the time to be on our show with us today. Well, thank you too, Kathy. Everybody, um, happy Halloween. Uh, happy end of November, and we will talk to you next week on, or happy end of October, and we will talk to you next week on The Health Hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.